The message this morning is entitled, For Such a Time as This. We've been talking about the three angels' messages, and uh, we're going to kind of, we're going to be within the context, but we're going to segue a little bit. You'll see what I mean as we get into the message. But before we do, I want to kneel and ask God to bless our time, and I'm going to ask if you would bow your heads with me as I do so. Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much for your holy Sabbath. Thank you for a beautiful day, Lord, and all the reminders around us, the beauty that you've surrounded us with of your love for us, your everlasting love, and your desire for each one of us for something better than what this world has to offer. So, Father, I pray this morning that as we spend some time in your word, your Holy Spirit would illuminate our understanding. And, Father, put a holy purpose within our hearts today to fulfill your will. For we ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. I want to start this morning with a statement that I do not have on the slide in this presentation. I shared it in our first evening together. And it's a statement found by the pen of Ellen White in the 19th volume of the manuscript releases. And it's unfortunate because it's one of the most powerful statements that I've read. And when you tuck something into the manuscript releases, it's usually not very widely heard or known. And I remember the first time I heard it, it blew me away. And it has subsequently done so for people I share it with. Now, I shared it on Monday night. Not Monday night, on uh, Wednesday night. But this is the statement. It says, the light that Christ revealed to his servant. In fact, let me back up just a little bit and give you some context. This was given at a time when there were people in our denomination that thought that we ought to kind of scale back the name Seventh-day Adventist because putting it to the front was offensive to people. And so they said, we ought to just act more non-denominational. They used the word undenominational. And this was her response, okay, in that context. And you, you can do the math as to why I may be bringing that up in the days we're living in. The light that Christ revealed to his servant, the prophet, speaking of John the Revelator, is for us. In his revelation are given the three angels' messages and a description of the angel that was to come down from heaven with great power, lightening the earth with his glory. Does anybody know what that's referring to? The angel that was to come down from heaven, lightening the earth. In addition to the three angels, she mentions another angel here. Does anybody know where that's from? That's Revelation 18, and that's what we're talking about this afternoon. It's something that so few Adventists really spend much time talking about. It's the the loud cry angel. It's the latter reign of the Holy Spirit, and it's something that is part of what she mentions here. Now listen to in this context. I'm going to read it again. In his revelation are given the three angels' messages and a description of the angel that was to come down from heaven with great power, lightening the earth with his glory. In it, that is that message of revelation, are warnings against the wickedness that would exist in the last days and against the mark of the beast. We are not only to read and understand this message, but to proclaim it with no uncertain sound to the world. Now, the only way you can proclaim something with an uncertain sound, it's got to be clear in your mind, right? We're not just to hear it. Okay, we're not just to come together and congregate and listen to the messages. Why do we come together and listen to messages? To clarify it in our mind, to strengthen our faith so we can do what? Share it. Fulfill the commission of Jesus Christ. By presenting these things revealed to John, she says, we shall be able to stir the people. 
the usual subjects on which the ministers of nearly all other denominations dwell will not move them. Now, I'm not trying to be critical this morning, but I want to be very clear from inspiration. Too many Seventh-day Adventists in our day think that if we preach more like the evangelicals, we'll win more people. And yet, by inspiration, we're told that those messages will not stir the people. It's not that they're bad messages to talk about the love of God and the salvation of Christ through the cross. It's not that we shouldn't be preaching them. The problem is we live in a world that's gospel-hardened. And the messages of the three angels are designed by God to awaken the conscience and the need for, sa for a Savior. Read it again. The ministers, the usual subjects on which the ministers of nearly all other denominations dwell will not move them. We must proclaim our God-given message to them. The world is to be warned by the proclamation of this message. If we blanket it, if we hide our light under a bushel, if we so circumscribe ourselves that we cannot reach the people, we are answerable to God for our failure to warn the world. That's one heavy-duty statement. That's 19 manuscript releases, page 41. The reason that we exist as a people and as a church is to prepare the world for the coming of Christ, to give a message to the world so they can be ready for the coming of Christ. And we can talk together about the blessing and even singing the songs we do about how that uh, we will rise and the power of Jesus in our lives and, 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 and the, the greatness of knowing that he rose from the dead and the hope that we can have, and that's all great, but there are multitudes of people that we pass every day who don't have a clue about that hope. And how can we really call ourselves disciples of Jesus? Would Jesus walk by somebody who didn't know the hope of salvation and act indifferent? There's no way. And at the heart of Christianity is that desire to share the gospel. Now, the theme, I don't, I have not studied Greek. I've only studied a little bit, but I know enough to know that little word there on the cover of this is euangelion. Okay? It's, where, it's the word the gospel, or what does the gospel mean? Gospel means good news. You ever wonder why God called it something that, that, that means news? What's, what's characteristic of news? Somebody has told me before it's new. That could be true. But what is characteristic of news? I'll tell you what's characteristic of news. News is something you share. News is something you tell. When you hear news, and it's not only with good news, is it? Because we're all the time like, man, did you hear about the terrorist attack? Well, I really didn't want to, but right? that's the bad news, and we want to tell that. The characteristic of news is that you share it. And it was not a mistake that God called the gospel good news. And I'll tell you, I work, uh, I'm the director of the Emanuel Institute. We run a training school uh, similar to the SALT program, but we, we actually used to do something more extensive than that. And we, in our conference, we're the lay training school for our conference in Michigan, target short trainings for lay churches, for local ch uh, uh, church members, for two-week trainings, seven-day trainings, things like that. Even today, right today in the Michigan Conference, they're having a conference-wide rally for the Bible study reformation because we want to see every one of our members involved in giving Bible studies to people and leading them to understand the third angel's message so they'll be ready when Jesus comes. Because the reality is this, and we've been told again and again, the work in this earth will never be finished by the ministry. 
or by the leadership. You go to the early church and the gospel wasn't preached just by the leadership. It was preached by who? It was preached by everybody. And preaching doesn't mean sitting up here and talking to a group of people. The word in the Greek is caruso, and it means to share something verbally with somebody. You can be sitting down, I can be like this, and I'm preaching, right? And you can do the same thing. And the Lord Jesus has called you to do the same thing. And you know, in the book Education, we are told that when we, listen, I've trained, I can't tell you how many people. And you know why people don't share? There's two main reasons people don't share today in the Adventist church. Number one, we, many of us ourselves, question what we teach. We have our own questions about what we believe. I'm going to tell you a lot of that stems from the fact that we don't share it as much. One of the young men shared last night. They were giving a Bible study to somebody about Daniel 2. Adventists, we hear Daniel 2. We start to yawn right away. Hey, we're going to preach. In fact, if I got up here today and said, today I'm going to preach on Daniel chapter 2. Uh, right? Oh, we know Daniel 2. Oh, we're going to go over that again, the image, and da-da-da-da-da. But he says, I shared this with a guy, and the guy was just thrilled with it. And you know what happens to us when we share with somebody one of those, oh, yawn, avenous things, and they get excited? You know what happens? We say, huh, you know, maybe this is worth getting excited about. Then it works a revival. I remember one of the times when I was in my first church, in, in, when I went into full-time ministry, and I was doing a Bible study with a young couple who grew up Christian reform. In Grand Rapids, Michigan, I'm studying, and the funny thing is the guy I'm studying with, he's one of these non-expressive guys. Like, you can't read him. You know, some people, they respond a lot, and you can kind of see engage where This guy's just kind of deadpan. The whole time, he's just kind of this straight uh, uh, face. And I go through the Daniel 2 study. We get down to the end of the study. The rock cut out without hands, and everything God has predicted, and it happened just like he said. And the only thing left to happen is the coming of Christ. And he's just sitting there. I said, what do you think? And he, and he pauses, and he says, why haven't I learned this in my whole life? This is absolutely incredible. We need to tell everybody. And I was like, oh, praise the Lord. <laughs> but the point is this. The Lord didn't just give us the commission of sharing the message with others for their sake. He gave the work to us for our sake. It reminds us of the power of the gospel. And the Seventh-day Adventist faith is about finishing that work of Jesus, carrying forward the three angels' messages. It's not just for the ministers, it's for every one of us, because we live in such a time as this. And again, the message today is for such a time as this. I want to go today to the book of Esther. That's where the word is taken from, the phrase, for such a time as this. Now, I'm going to do some things with the book of Esther today, and I'm just going to ask, ask for your mercy up front. I shouldn't say I'm going to do some things with the book of Esther, but we may look at the book of Esther a little different today than the way you looked at the book of Esther I only say that from experience because I've done it before. I did this on 3ABN and I got people mad callers calling in and 3ABN called me about it and I had to verify that what I was saying was biblical but it may be a little bit different. So bear with me and if you have a different interpretation, that's okay. But I think the main point you're going to come to that I, that I come to is going to be the same. Um, Esther, <clears throat> how many of you, uh, you didn't even have to necessarily grow up Adventist but have read the book, the storybook, the Little My Bible Friends, Brave Queen Esther. Remember that story? Okay, I'm not talking about Brave Queen Esther today. I am, I am, but I'm not talking about the Bible storybook, Brave Queen Esther, okay? Uh, now, I'm talking and not turning, so I got to go 
to the book of Esther, right before the book of Job. We're going to go to Esther uh, chapter 1. I'm not going to break down all of this in Esther because, you know, it would take uh, uh, too much time, but I'll, get the, I'll hit the high points and then make explanation. Now we're going to start in Esther 1, verse 1. The Bible says, Now it came to pass in the days of Ahasuerus, this was the Ahasuerus who reigned over 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia. Remember the Persians were one of those kingdoms in Daniel 2 that ruled the world. And Ahasuerus was one of the kings of that world empire of Persia. In those days when King Ahasuerus sat on the throne of his kingdom, which was in Shushan, the citadel, that in the third year of his reign he made a feast for all his officials and servants, the powers of Persia and Media, the nobles and the princes of the provinces being before him. When he showed the riches of his glorious kingdom and the splendor of his excellent majesty for many days, 180 days in all. How long is that? 180 days. That's a six-month party, man. The king of Persia throws a six-month party for all of those, it says. That's what it says. Um, for the nobles his official servants, etc., in all the provinces of Persia. So I don't imagine they were all there for six months. People were coming in and out, and during that time, in fact, some historians believe that he held this, this uh, party. It was for his, basically for the honor of his military leaders of, of, of Persia and media, you know, the rulers, etc., likely to discuss and plan his invasion of Greece, which would happen two years later. So it wasn't just a party. It was, uh, it was an opportunity to get together with everybody and kind of cast his vision, okay? At least that's what historians think that this meeting had to do with. Now, verse 6 says, well, verse 6 describes a little bit of, of uh, how they, it looks like they redecorated the palace. I don't know. You can read through that. And then it says <clears throat> in verse 8, in accordance with the law, The drinking was not compulsory, for so the king had ordered all the officers of his household that they should do according to each man's pleasure. Queen Vashti also made a feast for the women in the royal palace, which belonged to King Ahasuerus. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry, I, I need to back up. See, and I, I, I missed over the part that in addition to the sixth month, or at the end of the sixth month in verse 5, it says this, when these days were completed, the king made a feast lasting seven days for who? All the people who were present in Shushan, the citadel, from who? Great to small. That, who was invited? Everybody was invited, okay? So at the end, he had his military officers and everything, officers for six months. At the end of that period, he had a seven-day feast and everybody could come. And so it was a big high time for everybody in his in Shushan, in the citadel, where the palace was, and all of this, okay? And it's during this time that Queen Vashti also had a feast for the women. Now, verse 10 says, On the seventh day of the king's feast, when the heart of the king was what? Merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Bista, Harbona, Bigta. Are you glad you weren't born in Persia? Maybe you were born in Persia, but uh, these are interesting names, aren't they? Of course, I know how it goes. My sister-in-law is Chinese, and, when, and, and you know, when they come to America, they take names like Jill, you know, or something like that. She goes by Lynette, but that's not her name. Her name is Dongxiang, but Lynette is her Americanized name, so it may be, but I, I look through these. these. These can be a mouthful sometimes to go through. Mehuman, Bista, Harbona, Bigta, Abagta, Zithar, and Carcass, seven 
seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus to bring Queen Vashti before the king wearing her royal crown in order to show her beauty to the people and the officials, for she was beautiful to behold. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command brought by his eunuchs, and therefore the king was furious and his anger burned within him. Now let's just break this down. Here's basically at the end of this whole big six months, king has his seven-day feast, and at the end of his seven-day feast, he's what? Drunk. And in his drunken state, he says, you know, I'd love to have my wife come before this august assembly of mine and do what? Show off her beauty. Now, if you're a principled woman, is that a good idea? Oh, yeah, I think I'm going to go show my beauty off to a bunch of drunken men. Probably not the best idea, certainly not a respectful thing to do. And she chose not to go, even though she was a queen, even though it was a king's command. She said, I'm not going to do that. Now, it's interesting, and I want to notice uh, this from the screen, from the book. Do I have this turned on? From the book, uh, Prophets and Kings, sorry, and the clicker's not advancing for me. So, there we go. When this command came from the king... Vashti did not carry out his orders because she knew he was under the influence of intoxicating liquor. Next slide, please. For her husband's sake, as well as her own, she decided not to leave her position at the head of the women of the court. Let me make something clear right now. There are times when your spiritual decision that is not only for your good, but the good of your friend may not be appreciated by your friend. As a Christian, we don't just act in reference to what people like and what people want. Because I pastor our academy church, I hear it all the time. We get in committees and we're like, but the kids wouldn't like that. You know something? It really doesn't always matter what the kids like. Now, I can say that because I've been a parent for a long time. And it's not just kids. It's your friends. And if you give in a, live in a way, we talked about Peter last night. Well, that was Peter's problem. Peter always wanted to do what was likable by everybody. Praise the Lord that Vashti was faithful, but her faithfulness lost her the crown. The Bible says the king's advisors came in and said, well, king, we can't have this. We can't have her going off and defying your orders. What are we going to do about it? Let's get rid of her and let's bring somebody else in. So enter Esther into the picture. Now let's go to... Uh, Chapter 2 says, After these things, when the wrath of King Ahasuer subsided, he remembered Vashti what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's servants who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought for the king. Apparently, the king was lonely. He regretted the decision, like you will always do when you're under the influence of alcohol, not when you're under, after you're under the influence. The Bible says, you know what the Bible says about alcohol, right? At the last, it stings like a viper. Not at the first. That's a big problem. At the first, it feels good. That's why a lot of people, they say, well, I grew up learning it wasn't good, but I had a couple drinks and I felt really good. Sure you did. You felt really good until you do something stupid, and then you're like, oh, now I get it. At the last, it, what's it say, bites, bites like a serpent, stings like an adder or a viper, or depending on the translation you're reading. Well, he came to his senses, kind of regretted it, but his servant said, hey, look, we're going to find another girl for you. And so it says in verse 3, let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom that they may 
gather all the beautiful young virgins to Shushan, the citadel, and the women's quarters under the custody of Hegai, the king's eunuch, custodian of the women, and let beauty preparations be given them. Then let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This thing pleased the king, and he did so. In Shushan, the citadel, was a certain Jew whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish Benjamite. Kish had been carried away from Jerusalem with the captives who had been captured with Jeconiah, the king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away. And Mordecai had brought up Hadassah, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman was lovely and beautiful, when her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So it was when the king's command and decree were heard, and when many young women were gathered at Shushan the citadel under the custody of Hegai, that Esther was also taken to the king's palace into the care of Hegai, the custodian of the women. Now, verse 9, we're in verse 9 of chapter 2. Now the young woman pleased him, and she obtained his favor, so he readily gave beauty preparations to her besides her allowance. Then seven choice maidservants were provided for her from the king's palace, and he moved her and her maidservants to the best place in the house of the women. Esther had not revealed her people or family, for Mordecai had charged her not to reveal it. Now we're just going to read on through because a lot of our points, then we're going to draw points out of the passage we're reading here. Verse 11 says, And every day Mordecai paced in front of the court of the women's quarters to learn of Esther's welfare and what was happening to her. Each young woman's turn came to go into King Ahasuerus after she had completed what? Twelve months preparation. I don't know what that says. I mean, if somebody said, you know, we're going to make you beautiful, do you have a year? I don't know how you're supposed to take that. But they had 12 months. All of them had 12 months, so I guess it didn't single anybody out, of beauty preparations, and it goes on to describe those. It says, um, again in verse 12, each young uh, woman's turn came to go into King Ahasuerus after she completed 12 months preparation according to the regulations for the women, and thus were the days of their preparation apportioned, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with perfumes and preparations for beautifying women. Thus prepared... Each young woman went to the king, and she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the woman's quarters to the king's palace. In the evening she went, and in the morning she returned to the second house of the women, to the custody of Shashgaz, the king's eunuch, who kept the who? Concubines. She would not go in to the king again, unless the king delighted in her and called for her by name. Now when the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his daughter to go into the king, she requested nothing but what he got the king's eunuch, the custodian of the women, advised. And Esther obtained favor in the sight of all who saw her. So Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. The king loved Esther more than all other women, and she obtained grace and favor in his sight more than all the other virgins. So he set the royal crown upon her head and made her queen instead of Vashti, then the king made a great feast, the Feast of Esther, which I understand they keep to this day from one of my church members who happens to be um, 
uh, I want to say a, a, a Syrian in her nationality, says he still keeps the Feast of Esther, for all his officials and servants, and he proclaimed a holiday in the provinces and gave gifts according to the generosity of a king. Verse 19 says, Now when virgins were gathered together a second time, Mordecai sat within the king's gate. Now Esther had not revealed her family and her people, just as Mordecai had charged her, for Esther obeyed the command of Mordecai as when she was brought up by him. Now let's put some things together here about this story that I think are curious. There's a few things that we want to draw out. First of all, you know King Cyrus had issued a decree to let all the captives go back home to their homeland. Are you aware of that? I want you to notice the statement here. Under the favor shown them by Cyrus, nearly 50,000 of the children of the captivity had taken advantage of the decree permitting their return. However, the great majority of the Israelites had chosen to remain in the land of their exile rather than undergo the hardships of the return journey and the reestablishment of their desolated cities and homes. Now, I suppose there could be good reasons drawn out of that, but the bottom line is this. Mordecai did not go home with the rest of the captives. It was inconvenient. He decided he was going to stay in Persia. I guess he had a good job there, and Esther was growing up, and the uh, Bible doesn't tell us how old Esther was at this time. The Bible, the Bible also tells us, though, that um, Esther's real name was Hadassah. Now, if you read the little children's story book, it says that Esther's real name was Hadassah, but she was also called Esther, which means what? Does anybody remember? A star. Isn't that nice? It does mean a star, but you know what it has reference to? It doesn't have reference to stars. It has reference to Ishtar, the Babylonian goddess, or Ashtoreth, another foreign goddess. Now, Mordecai stays in Persia, doesn't reveal that he's a Jew, makes sure Esther doesn't reveal that they're Jews, and renames her with a non-Jewish name, something that would be more in harmony with the pagan world they lived in. Now, I know... Well, wait a minute, now, I've read some statements, even in the Spirit of Prophecy, I mean, it talks about how faithful Mordecai, I'm not saying he wasn't faithful, I'm not saying she wasn't faithful, I want to say this, from reading it, we're going to look at, I want to draw out a couple of the things from this passage. I'm going to tell you that there are a lot of faithful Christians in this world today who know nothing of the Bible Sabbath, doesn't mean they're not faithful, but I'm going to tell you something, if you think your Christianity is a set right now, you're in big trouble. Because Christianity is ever learning and ever growing and ever advancing. You're walking with Jesus. Jesus isn't standing still. There are things you learn and you grow into. And I think this story shows us a little bit of that. We know for whatever reason, and the Bible doesn't give the reasons, but Mordecai didn't go back, like I said, he didn't go back to his homeland. He stayed in Persia. He, Esther's name was a name that connected to the goddesses Ishtar and Ashtoreth. Esther was offered by her uncle as a replacement for the queen, which meant he was offering up to her to be equal, unequally yoked with the king of Persia. Right? That's not a really good idea to marry a pagan king. Just a little bit of information for you young ladies here. If you want to stay faithful to your faith, don't go marry somebody who's a leader in another faith. These are all things that were written in the law of Moses. These are all things that God had given very clearly in, in his instruction that they should have known well, but they're 
little items in the story that lead us to think that maybe there was some growth that needed to happen in the experience of Mordecai and Esther. Under Mordecai's command, Esther didn't reveal her people or her family. And it goes on through the 12 months of preparations. And then we come down to uh, verse 20. After she'd been brought into the king's palace, it says, still nobody knew her family or her people because Mordecai had told her not to and she obeyed Mordecai. Now that's a credit in Esther's favor because evidently she grew up being obedient and compliant. She wasn't a rebellious child, right? But let me ask you a question. How do you spend 12 months with heathen and they don't realize you're an Adventist? Don't you think when the Sabbath rolled around, that might give somebody a clue? Don't you think when they put unclean food in front of you, that would be a clue? Yes or no? How do you get through with 12 months and nobody still knows? Unless you're really not living that much of an Adventist lifestyle. Okay, you do the math on it. We passed all that period of time. And then when the 12 months were finished and she went in before the king, what does it say? She went in, she spent the night. She went from the women's house and she went back to what house? You know what a concubine is. What happened to the faithful Adventist girl? You understand what I'm saying? There are a lot of things in this story that lead us to say, you know what? Maybe Esther wasn't exactly where she needed to be. Now, I told you, I've shared this with people before, and oh, we get all bristled up because Esther's the hero of the story. Well, let me make a point here this morning. Esther and David and Samson, and none of them are the heroes of the story. God is the hero of the story. And those Bible stories are not to show us how great the people were, but what great things God could do through people who weren't so great. And I don't want to say again, Esther seems to be, she was obedient, she had good principles, but somehow or the other, it seems to me that she had things to learn in her walk. And maybe I'll put it this way. Maybe I'll put it this way. Nobody's born converted. Just because you were raised in a Christian home does not make you a Christian. You've been raised as an Adventist. You might have been raised as an Adventist and keeping the Sabbath and not eating unclean foods and who knows what. That doesn't make you committed to God. There comes a point in everybody's life where the God that they've learned about has to become their own God, right? You read the story of Joseph, when Joseph was taken out of Egypt to be a slave. Ellen White says in Patriarchs and Prophets that as that caravan was carting him off to Egypt, he could see the hills that just beyond were his father's tents, but he had no way to go. They were carrying away from home, and home was getting further and further in the distance. And she says, at that point, Joseph knelt down and he prayed to God. And I want you to know something else. If you read the story of Joseph, you know, good little Joseph, Joseph was kind of a brat that was spoiled when he was growing up by his dad. That's why his brothers had an issue with him. The people in the Bible were real people just like we're real people. But God can make real people heroes. And when Joseph saw himself getting away from home, Ellen White says that he knelt down there in that wagon as he was being carted off and he... And at that point, he asked God, the God of his father, to be his God. There must come a time in everyone's life where you choose to serve God for yourself. And I want to tell you something in my experience. I grew up in the Seventh-day Adventist church for a period of time. My mom and dad got divorced, 
I lived with my mom. My mom ended up leaving the Adventist church for years. I was 14 years old. We left the Adventist church. We left religion altogether. It's funny to me. It's funny to me to hear Seventh-day Adventists today say, oh, you know, we got all these rules in the Adventist church. We just need to be free from them. Let me just give you a quick news flash here. I was free from all the rules of Adventism for 10 years of my life when I was 14 years old, well, a little bit more than 10, until I was 26 years old. And it was anything but freedom. It was anything but freedom. It's not freedom not to know Christ. It's not freedom not to serve Christ. And I praise God that he pursued me all that time. But when I was 26 years old, I had to make my own decision to follow Jesus. And let me tell you something. My commitment wasn't my mom and dad's commitment. I began to read my Bible. When I decided to follow the Lord, I followed some things my mom and dad never followed. I said, what are you doing? You're, you're, you're crazy. Why do you think you're doing that? I mean, you'd think they'd be happy. But you know what? We're not always happy if somebody comes in and they want to take a step further than we are. Because now maybe I have to take it. Maybe I should be taking that step. I just want you to understand that Christianity is a personal decision to follow Christ. It's not your mom's or dad's or your brother's or your sister's or your friend's, your husband's, your wife's. It's your decision. It has to be your decision. If it's never been your decision, you're not a Christian. Because your Christianity starts when you decide to serve Christ. And I believe in this story that what we're going to see happen is a transition in the life of Esther, who grew up, yes, with some good principles, but she had never made God her God. That God wasn't done with her yet. He put her in a position with what at least I'm seeing here, some weaknesses. You know, you don't have to be perfect for God to use you. You don't have to have everything together and all lined up for God to use you. In fact, if you wait for that to happen, you'll never be used. God takes people where they are and puts them in service that will help them to become what he wants them to be. For Emmanuel Institute, our text for Emmanuel Institute is Mark 1.17. Mark 1.17, and I'm going to test you on this, and you're probably going to get it wrong. It's, a kind, of a, it's a kind of a trick thing. But Mark 1.17 says, um, follow me and I will make you. You got it wrong. Because you're thinking Matthew, right? This is what Mark does. Follow me and I will make you to become fishers of men. You know why I like that one? Because if you're going to become it, it means you're not that now. But it doesn't matter. God can make you what you're not. And that's the powerful thing about God. That's the powerful thing about the stories in the Bible. David was a man after God's own heart who committed adultery and then covered it up with murder. Now, God doesn't endorse his adultery or murder, but God shows that in spite of it, he was able to bring David back and still use him in his cause. It doesn't matter where you've been in your experience. God is calling you now at this time in earth's history. God had Esther and put her in a prominent position. Why? Because he knew what he could do through her. And none of you, none of you are where you are today by accident. God sees ahead what he wants to do with you in your life. Well, Esther comes into the king's palace and we have this thing that comes up between a man named Haman. Uncle Mordecai 
refused to bow down to Haman. We see that in back chapter, chapter 3, verse 1. The Bible says, after these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the what? The Agagite. Did that ring a bell for anybody? We're going to come back to that in a minute. The son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, and advanced him and set his seat above all the princes who were with him. And all the king's servants who were within the king's gate bowed and paid homage to Haman, for so the king had commanded concerning him, but Mordecai would not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were within the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? Now it happened when they had spoke to him daily and would not listen to them, he would not listen to them, that they told it to Haman to see whether Mordecai's words would stand. For Mordecai had told them that he was a Jew. You know, what, what great friends, right? They're like, yeah, let's see. Mordecai says he's not going to bow down. I wonder how firm he is in his beliefs. Hey, Haman, guess what? There's a guy named Mordecai, and he's not bowing down. What? And the king, or Haman, follows it up and finds out that's the case and gets irate with Mordecai. And as the story goes on, he actually arranges with the king to exterminate the Jewish people. Not just Mordecai, the Jewish people, Mordecai's people. He finds out he's a Jew. Now, a little insight here is the fact that the Bible says he was an Agagite. Does the name Agag ring a bell to anybody? Some of you remember the name Agag. That was the king that Saul brought back from battle. When, when, Saul sent, uh, when, when God sent Saul in after the Amalekites, and he told him, I want you to destroy the Amalekite nation and bring nothing back, it was customary to bring back the kings or some kind of spoil from the war to show how great you were. But God said, no, don't do that. We're not going to do it that way. Yet Saul characteristically disobeyed the command of the Lord, brought back some of the livestock, and he brought back the king, King Agag. And when he brought him in before Samuel the prophet, Samuel said, Saul, what are you doing? In essence, you weren't supposed to bring any of this back. And Saul said, look, you know, I, Saul didn't have a lot of good to say. God said, uh, the prophet Samuel then looked to the king. And King Agag says to Samuel, hey, look, man, he's, he, you, know, you got to imagine, you're the king that was brought back. And here's the prophet of God telling the king that brought you back, uh, you were supposed to kill all these people. And you're sitting over here and you're the king and you're like, oh, Surely, and this is what Agag says, surely the anger of the battle is past. <laughs> and the Bible says the prophet Samuel took out his sword and hewed Agag in pieces before the Lord. Haman was an Agagite. I think there might be a little revenge there, potentially. He found out Mordecai was not bowing down to him, and oh, by the way, he was a Jew, and he set out to exterminate all the Jews. Got the king's grant, set things in motion, set a date, and according to the Bible and the laws of the Medes and the Persians, you can't change it once you've made it law. So much so that in the course of the story, where Esther actually goes into the king and obtains privilege from the king, uh, to, the king can't overturn the law. All he can do is make another law and say, okay, well, you guys can defend yourselves. And I'm not going to go to that right now. But Haman was given the right to exterminate the Jews. 
And that brought the crisis It's going to take us to chapter 4. Now, I'm not going all through the story of Esther, but I want to zero in on chapter 4. This is the response. Now there's this decree. The Jews hear about the decree. They've proclaimed it in all the land, and the Jews now are, in a customary way, fasting and praying and mourning. And they're wearing sackcloth, which was a sign of that mourning, which was not news to someone like Esther. Now, that becomes important as we look at something here very shortly. Chapter 4, notice what it says in verse 1. When Mordecai learned all that had happened, he tore his clothes and put on what? Sackcloth and ashes. This is not something you reach into the closet for. <laughs> what am I going to wear today? Oh, let's get the sackcloth out and uh, honey, is there ashes? Some, oh, good, I'm going to put those on today. It's not an accidental or incidental thing you do. It's a very deliberate thing you do as a Jew. It's a sign of mourning. Don't miss that. And the Bible says he put on the sackcloth and ashes. He went out into the midst of the city, cried out with a loud and bitter cry. So here's Mordecai, again, crying out with this bitter cry, wearing the sackcloth. He's really made himself a spectacle. He went as far, verse 2, as the front of the king's gate, for no one might enter the king, king's gate clothed with sackcloth. And in every province where the king's command and decree arrived, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping, and wailing, and many lay in sackcloth and ashes. So Esther's maids and eunuchs came and told her, and the queen was deeply distressed. Then she sent garments to clothe Mordecai and take his sackcloth away from him, but he would not accept them. Now, I've read some commentators who they said Esther was just feeling sorry for Mordecai when she heard about it, so she sent him a change of clothes. That just doesn't wash. If you're, if, you're, if you're customarily mourning, if you find out your friend is crying about something and they're really broke, hey, you know, your friend, she's been crying for 24 hours now. What do you do, send her a box of Kleenex? <laughs> and a note says, call me when you feel better? No, you're going to go and say, hey, what's wrong? Tell me about it. Can I help out? Isn't that right? Why was Esther sending the clothes to Mordecai? Because he was making a public spectacle and she was worried about what might happen. He's going to draw attention to us. And then this is going to be... Esther was wavering here. I don't know if I want to say wavering might be a strong word. But she didn't get the full import of what was going on. And evidently she wasn't fully aware of what was going on. She just knew that Mordecai was making a spectacle of himself out. And here, take some clothes to him and tell him to get cleaned up. Verse 5 says, Then Esther called Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, whom he had appointed to attend her, and she gave him a command concerning Mordecai to learn why and why this was. Remember, he wouldn't accept the clothing. They come back and say, hey, he's not taking them. Well, why not? Go find out. So Hathak went out to Mordecai in the city square that was in front of the king's gate. And Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries to destroy the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the written decree for their destruction, which was given at Shushan, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her, and that he might command her to go into the king to make supplication to him and plead before him for her people. So Hathak returned and told Esther the words of Mordecai. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and gave him a command for Mordecai. All the king's servants and all the people of the king's provinces know that any man or woman who goes into the inner court to the king who has not been called, he has but one law. 
put all to death except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter that he may live. Yet I myself have not been called to go into the king for these 30 days. So they told Mordecai Esther's words. She basically says, look, I understand the pinch you're in, but nobody can go in before the king. For me to go in before the king could be my death. I would have to risk my life to go in before the king. Okay, so the message is sent to Mordecai. And here, this to me is the most powerful, one of the most powerful passages in the Bible. This is what Mordecai says. And I want to tell you, let me, let me back up a little bit. Let me back up and let's just make application here. Folks, we are living in a time where Bible prophecy tells us that the very same thing is going to happen to us. Why was Haman so mad at Mordecai? Because he wouldn't bow down to him. And there's coming a time when those who are faithful to God are going to be portrayed just like Mordecai. When Mordecai was presented to the king and, and, and Haman said, look, king, there's this guy, Mordecai. He didn't tell him it was Mordecai, by the way, if you've read the story, because Mordecai had saved the king from a, an assassination plot. So later on in the story, when the king finds out that it was Mordecai that Haman was trying to destroy, Haman's hanged on the gallows. The point in the story is this. We are living in a time when if you're faithful to God, it won't be long, friends, before the pe when you read about ISIS in the news, when you look at our national response to the horror of ISIS, it's not going to be ISIS. It's going to be Seventh-day Adventists. Make no mistake. There are a lot of Seventh-day Adventists today who are working so hard to be popular with the world. Jesus said, if the world hated me, it's going to hate you too. I'm not saying we try to be hated by the world, but the fact is it's going to come. And when that comes, a decree is going to be made. And those who choose to be faithful to God are going to face that decree. This is where they were. Here the decree has been made. Mordecai says, Esther, you've got to do something. God has put you in a position to be able to do something. I can't do that. If I had to do that, I would risk my life. Word comes back to Mordecai, and notice what he says to Esther. Verse 13. Or to the servants to tell Esther. And Mordecai told them, to answer Esther, do not think in your heart that you will escape in the king's palace any more than all the other Jews. For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance, what? That's a statement of faith right there. Look, relief and deliverance will arise. God will not let his people suffer. God is going to intervene. I don't know how he's going to do it. Esther, you're in a position to do something about it. But if you want to be silent, God will bring deliverance. But you and your father's house will perish. God has placed you as young Seventh-day Adventists in one of the most privileged positions that there is in this world to bear witness to the truth of Jesus Christ before the coming of Jesus Christ. And you can decide to absorb yourself in something else in this world and put it off, and God will bring deliverance in another way, but you are going to miss out on the blessed opportunity God has given you. Esther, you and your house are going to perish. You're not going to save yourself. The decree has still been made. They're still going to find you out, and you're a Jew, and you're going to perish with the rest of us on top of it. Or the danger is going to come your way. God's going to bring deliverance, but you're going to perish because you didn't stand for what was right. But what does he say? Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. 
What powerful words. Some of the most powerful words spoken to her and spoken to you and me today. Who knows? But that God has put us where we are for the very time we live in, has put us in the place we are with the circle of influence that we have for such a time as this. You are not where you are by accident. The people you work with are not there by accident. I don't even care if they're Seventh-day Adventists. You say, well, everybody I know is Seventh-day Adventists. Are they really? Are we really ready for Jesus to come? The Apostle Paul says, no one lives to himself or dies to himself. You have an influence given you by God. How are you using that influence? You may know the story of this man, Pastor Martin Niemöller. During Nazi Germany, he was with a group called the Confessing Church, worked with Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He ended up finally getting arrested for his faith. And in light of that, and you've probably heard a statement because it's been used and repeated many times from many different people, Speaking afterwards about that arrest, he says, first they came for the socialists, because Hitler didn't like socialists. He said, I didn't speak out because I was not a socialist. Then they came for the trade unionists, and I didn't speak out because I wasn't a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews, and I didn't speak out because I wasn't a Jew. Then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak for me. God has given you a voice to speak with. God has given you a mind to think with. God has given you a will to make a decision with. What are you doing with those privileges of God, those blessings of God, those talents of God? Notice this statement here. The trying experiences that came to God's people in the days of Esther were not peculiar to that age alone. The same spirit that in ages past led men to persecute the true church will in the future lead to the pursuance of a similar course towards those who maintain their what? Their loyalty to God. The decree that will finally go forth against the remnant people of God will be very similar to that issued by Ahasuerus against the Jews. Today the enemies of the true church see in the little command, a company keeping the Sabbath commandment a who? A Mordecai at the gate. The reverence of God's people for his law is a constant rebuke to those who have cast off the fear of the Lord and are trampling on his Sabbath. We're seeing these things and they're heating up. The world that we're living in is going to pieces in our government, in our church, in our world. You've got natural disasters, political unrest, and all of this, just like the Bible said. I'm going to tell you from my standpoint, I've been in the church for 20 years now. And 20 years ago, I said, Jesus is coming soon, but it was nothing like it is now. I can't express to you. I know you've heard the stories. People my age and older say, well, we used to say Jesus was coming soon, and yeah, 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 and he didn't come, and yada, yada, yada. And, we, and it almost sounds like he's never going to come. But I'll say with the Apostle Paul, it's nearer than when we first believed. And I told you on the first night, for those who were here, and for those who weren't, I'm going to repeat it. There are many of you here that I personally don't believe you're going to be able to enter into the field you're here to get a degree for. But you are going to be able to stand before kings of this earth to witness for Jesus Christ. I think that's the time we live in. I could be wrong about that. I'm not a prophet or the son of a prophet, but I'm just telling you, don't get out of college. Plan to go forward. Do your thing, but make your spiritual life your priority. Remember that above everything else, God has put you here to be witnesses for him. In the book Education, it tells us this. I'm finishing up with this statement. God's purpose for the children growing up beside our hearths is wider deeper, higher than our restricted vision has comprehended. 
Many a lad of today will yet stand in legislative assemblies, in halls of justice, or royal courts as witness for the king of kings. Some of you sitting here are going to stand before the rulers of this earth. Only God knows what lies in your future. To every household and every school, to every parent, teacher, and child upon whom has shown the light of the gospel comes at this crisis the question put to Esther the queen at that momentous crisis in Israel's history, who knoweth whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this? My friends, today I want to tell you, we read the story of Esther, at least from my estimation, when Esther started out, her commitment level wasn't what it needed to be. Perhaps there were weaknesses in her spiritual experience, just like there may be weaknesses in your spiritual experience. Perhaps there were commitments she hadn't made, just like commitments today that you haven't made. But God brought her to a point in her life where she evaluated the crisis and realized what God was calling her to. And when those words of her cousin came to her, who knows, but that you were put in this place for such a time as this, she took her stand. I want to tell you today that the Lord Jesus has brought you here for such a time as this. How many of you want to take your stand with him today? If that's your desire, stand your feet with me today. Say, Lord Jesus, use me. In spite of my weaknesses, in spite of some of my lacks of commitment or whatever, I want to be used in your cause. And while we're standing today, I want to make a special invitation there may be somebody here today, there may be somebody here today who knows very specifically something God has been calling you to make a commitment in. Maybe it's making a certain special commitment to him in service. Maybe it's making a commitment to get something out of your life that you know shouldn't be in your life, something that's hindering your relationship between you and him. And today the Spirit of God is calling you for such a time as this to put that thing aside and to make your full commitment to Jesus Christ. Is there somebody here today who would like to make that commitment by coming forward with me today? The Spirit of God is inviting you today if you need to make that commitment, that specific commitment that only he and you know. I'd like to invite you to come forward. I want to have a special prayer with you today. God bless you. And God bless you. Is there somebody else today? I don't know it. I don't need to know it. But Jesus knows it and you know it. And today you have an opportunity to come and make that decision and commit yourself to Jesus Christ. God bless you. Perhaps you're standing where you are and thinking, I want to make that commitment, but I don't feel like I have the strength to make that commitment. My friends, none of us have the strength to make that commitment. That's why we need Jesus. But he's here today to give you that strength. And if where you're standing, you're feeling the Spirit of God tugging on your heart, he's telling you, I'm here to help you. I'm here to give you strength. I'm here to strengthen you and help you to fill the place that God has, has for you in this world right now, that place of mission, that place for such a time as this. God bless you, sisters. Is there somebody else here today
Amen. I wish human words could express, I wish I even had a concept of the privilege we're looking at to fill the place God has for us at this time in earth's history. Of the blessing that we are going to be, I'm going to tell you that we are going to be the means of people being in heaven, not us directly, but indirectly. Jesus is going to win them, but he's going to do it through you and me. There will be people in the kingdom of God if we commit our lives to Jesus who wouldn't have been there otherwise. So if there's something holding somebody here back today, you know you haven't made the full commitment to Jesus. And he's longing to use you in the fullness of his power. Who wants to let that thing go, put it aside and say, I'm going to take my stand with Jesus today. I'm a pastor and I'm a father. And so I know that just showing up to church on Saturday doesn't mean a whole lot of anything. There may be some of you here today who are going through the motions, and you know it. You know it. You think the Lord doesn't know it? Not only does he know it, but he's inviting you to come to him and make it real today. Perhaps even as you're listening, you're thinking of things in your life, even recently, decisions you've made that you regret, and you want to put those behind you and plant your feet firmly on the rock Christ Jesus. Is there one more today who needs to make that decision? Is there one more today who needs to come? Doesn't matter what your status is. You could be a leader, you could be a pastor, you could be a teacher, you could be a professor. Doesn't matter, we're all sinners saved by grace. God bless you. God bless you. And God bless you, sister. Every decision for Jesus we make is the best decision we'll ever make. Amen? Now I'd like to bow our heads together for special prayer. And I invite you to bow your heads with me as we pray. Heavenly Father, Father, as we look at this story in the Bible today, we can't help but see some of the parallels with the times that we live in. We can't help but see the way that your power is displayed through these ordinary people. And it's a reminder to us that the same power will be displayed through us. We're not where we are by accident. The students aren't here by accident at Southern. They're not here. They're not in their jobs by accident. They don't have the neighbors they do by accident. None of us has anything that we have by accident, but there is a God who is ordaining and directing everything. And you have called us, Father, and those who have stood today have recognized that. And Lord, those who have come forward know that there's a special something that they've been wrestling with. And so, Father, they've come forward to give that over to you. And at the same time, they know that without you, they can do nothing. But with you, all things are possible. So, Father, we come before you with humble hearts today, asking us, uh, asking you, Father, to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. Father, we don't want to live pretentious lives. We want to live genuine Christian lives. We want people to see Jesus in us. We don't want our Christian life to be a farce, but we want 
that living relationship with Jesus that will testify to the world around us of his good news of salvation. So, Father, I'm asking today again for all of us, especially, Lord, those who have come forward, you know what the need is in each situation. I pray that you would lead them to victory in Jesus. I pray that you would receive them with open arms. And Father, use them in a mighty way in your service. For we ask and pray these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.